Class is in session. You're listening to Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshake. Let's go! Now, let's start the show. Hey, what's up, podcast sisters? Thank you guys so much for checking out today's show. This is episode 79 of the Squat University podcast. The goal with each and every one of these shows is to bring you as much value-packed content to help you move better in the gym and in life, decrease your body's aches and pains, and help you reach your true athletic potential. On today's show, I had the honor to sit down with one of the most influential people in the world of physical therapy. That's Shirley Sarman. Now, years ago, the physical therapy world was very much so a manual-based treatment profession with very little skill, in my opinion, in exercise. Now, Shirley's work, however, over the past six decades has started to change all of this. She's credited with being one of the leaders in establishing the physical therapy profession as experts in the diagnosis and treatment of injuries through the evaluation of movement. And that's something that she calls the Movement System Diagnostic Program. And we really dive into that today. This gives the physical therapist a very unique approach to helping athletes different than other professions because they understand why injuries occur in the weight room in the first place and how to really go about fixing them the right way. Now, I have to tell you, the ability to talk to a living legend in the physical therapy world like Shirley was nothing short of amazing. I really think you guys are going to like this conversation today. So without further ado, let's get to today's show. Well, Shirley, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the Squat University podcast. Uh, one of the biggest reasons I was so excited to talk to you was because in my eyes, in the eyes of a lot of other physical therapists that I interact with, the work that you have done over your career has truly transformed the physical therapy profession. Um, you know, and most people think of different professions in the medical field. We always think of someone that has a very specific skill in a certain topic. The neurologist has a very in-depth knowledge around the neurological system, the nervous system. The cardiologist understands the cardiac system like no one else. You go to a dentist if you want to get your teeth worked on. And years ago, you know, people only saw physical therapists as someone that would apply their skill after someone else, like a medical doctor, diagnosed what the problem was. I wish that was years ago, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think still today, we, we still, a lot of people are still in this same you know, totally. mindset, but totally. I feel like we're seeing a little bit of change to where physical therapists are now being seen a little bit more at least as those who can create their own diagnosis and really take ownership of their part in you know, being a medical professional. So as far as the amount of work that you did, I do wanna say thank you so much. It's, it's really been an honor to learn from you and all of your books that you've written. Um, the one thing that I, I wanted to start off with, for those who do not know of you and the work that you have done, can you give us just a brief introduction into the different things that you did in your career? I just worked a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, just a little bit for perspective is that my, my career started out at the end of the polio era. I mean, that's how 60 years I've been around. And um, actually, start from the beginning about '65, and 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 then the polio went away right as I was entering the profession. And so for nine years, I treated neurological patients. And the reason why that played a big role is everything was focused on the nervous system. I kind of even thought nerve innervated bone, because <laughs> we didn't care at all about the muscles. Because if you did something to it, it would make the spasticity worse. But it, it was also the time, a little bit referring to your opening comments, that 
I began to realize also that the physician's label for the patient's condition did nothing to help me understand how I was supposed to treat that patient. So, but I spent nine years trying to figure out if I could figure out what the problems were. And, um, and that wasn't working. <laughs> I wasn't getting a handle on things, so I escaped to graduate school and got a PhD in neurobiology, intent to solve the problems of the upper motor neuron syndrome. And, and the reason for this background is that my big focus was on the nervous system and how it worked or didn't work. And uh, so I, I took a, a whole seven years to try to get a PhD in uh, neurobiology. And then I uh, worked half time in the Department of Neurology. Believe it or not, I actually trained monkeys and recorded from their motor cortex. Uh, again, I did not push back any frontiers of ignorance. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then serendipitously got involved with musculoskeletal patients. But I had always been someone that was intrigued by how people moved. I mean, examples I like to use to convey the idea is here we, we spent all this time learning about normal gait. I wasn't sure I saw anybody use it. And mm. if we all walked the same way, why, why could I recognize somebody at a distance by how they moved if we were doing the same thing? And, and then there was also the question of, well, why does somebody move the way they move as compared to why somebody else moves the way they, they move? And, and so little issues like that. And, and then a, a, a new program director came to Washington University by the name of Steve Rose. And he, uh, he was very keen to uh, build a curriculum around pathokinesiology and also to do classification. You know, like you said in your opening remarks that the physical therapist can make a diagnosis, but you know, your big problem is there's no list. <laughs> true, very true. And we haven't really classified patients very much. There's been some attempt with low back pain. Okay, so he hauled me in to start looking at musculoskeletal patients. And um, basically I started looking at them the same way I looked at the stroke patients. And I was teaching them how to move and teaching them, having them do things that I had the, the, hemiple the hemiplegic patients doing and et cetera, the central nervous system lesion people. And they like got better. And I like didn't know why. <laughs> so, so, so then it was a matter of trying to put together the things I had remembered about muscles and muscle function, sort of all of the Florence Kendall muscle testing things and, uh, and figure out what, what was going on with this teaching people to move differently that changed their musculoskeletal pain and how it related to specifics. And meanwhile, hanging on to this, this strong commitment because being half-time in the Department of Neurology, it was very clear to see the value of having diagnostic categories. I mean, that's how the physicians work. And I always like to say we'd be dead if they didn't have them. Um, well, I mean, it's really totally true. And um, so anyway, um, that became the, the big pursuit is trying to understand a little bit more about how movement, and I think I, I like to say now, causes musculoskeletal problems. And so we call it kinesiopathology, how movement induces pathology, rather than just how a pathology induces movement faults. And, and I think um, that in some ways, the, our little professional hang up to, to the rest of the world, if, if not internally, is that 
it's still thought that the pathoanatomical diagnosis or the pathophysiological diagnosis is the information you need to treat the patients, but it, it isn't. It, it, I mean, I think that's getting clearer and clearer all the time, that what you need to know is, is what their movement faults are. Now, is that easy? No, because people are different, and you can't apply absolutely the same standard to everyone, but, but there are sort of the plus and minus values. And then I think the other thing that's really interesting about it all is, and there's more uh, research that comes out to support this, is that it's only a small bit of deviation in the movement that makes a difference. Example, in, for example, is uh, work of uh, students with Chris Powers, our co-investigators, have shown that just four degrees of hip medial rotation creates lesions in the patella that are the forerunners to OA of the patella. And um, the, the, the person that I call her been separating fact from fiction of, of the ideas that I put out there is Linda Van Dillen. Mm -hmm. And all of her work shows that it's, um, and, and this, this was the underlying premise, is that, for example, in the case of the lumbar spine, that it moves too readily. And that movements, particularly of the lower extremity and the hip, cause the back to move, mm -hmm. and it shouldn't move. And so that, that movement, that little bitty movement, is the thing that causes the pain. It, we call it sort of micro trauma that becomes macro trauma. And, um, and so you're, you are looking at small movements and you're putting it in the context of what does the person's particular build and movement pattern bring to the situation. So, so that's, and, and I, I always have to say it, it isn't just me. One of the, the smartest things I ever did was um, work at Washington University where I had amazing colleagues and uh, people that all came together. And I like to say, honestly, most of them have OCD, <laughs> which is really useful because they're, they're very good at holding my feet to the fire because I tend towards uh, attention deficit disorder. Mm. And, and, and so there turns out to be a little balance between all of those things. And um, so it's been a, sort of a long pursuit of working with my colleagues. And, and happily, the way it turned out is that everyone took on a special interest in a particular body region, like Nancy with the hip and Cheryl with the, the shoulder and uh, Mary-Kate with the cervical spine. And, and we've gone on and on like that and all building off of the same, the same theme. So, so that's what the work has been, is defining how movement induces pathology, uh, building it into naming the movement as the diagnostic category, mm -hmm. and developing what we think is a systematic um, exam to, to illustrate that, and Linda doing the research that happily, for the most part, has supported these notions. It's extremely interesting. I know, you know, going back to talking about uh, the patella and just how a little bit of medial or lateral rotation being a little bit off axis over time can create those lesions that then create OA. And when I talk to a lot of weightlifters, powerlifters, crossfitters, those who are loading motions like the squat and talking about how, you know, an emotion like that, it's very rare to see a very traumatic injury. You're, you're very rarely going to no, see like right. a torn ACL. But it's the deviations in having that knee wobble, I'll just That's say. That's why they get very, the ACL too. <laughs> oh, very true. At a much faster rate, yes. 
But, you know, with, with the weightlifter and the person that's very strength oriented, you know, they're not going to have that traumatic knee injury, but it's the slow progress over time of having those problems in movement and allowing those knees to waver, especially under load. It's just going to have that much even more force on the back of the knee. But it's interesting to hear that even a very small amount of instability in off axis motion can create those, you know, problems on the backside of the kneecap. Well, well, Aaron, you, you know, when if a researcher wants to study osteoarthritis, mm-hmm. you know what they do? They they get a little mouse or they get a little rat and they put a lesion in the medial meniscus and then they say, "Go walk, you little rat," and <laughs> and the little rat walks and the knee wobbles and guess what they get? Mm-hmm. Osteoarthritis. So it's that little wobble wobble factor. Yeah that little movement it's really i think it's fair to say the majority and majority of these things are are micro instability mm-hmm. that that take place over time it, it keeps building and building and what we call one of the tenets of the whole idea is the body follows the law of physics it takes the path of least resistance mm-hmm. and, and you know I, the other thing i want to be sure to to point out to you too because if, if the the people that are particularly interested in this uh, weightlifting thing is how you're training the nervous system Mm. because if you're lifting a heavy weight you know how many muscles you're using it's like all of them yeah and you know what they don't just say okay i'm not holding that weight anymore i'll just down downgrade to only what i need Mm -hmm. if you've trained them all to come on they come on yeah and so part of the issue so you're developing a path resistance i i i've been just if you try to passively move the, the limbs of people that have done a lot of weight, tra- heavy weight training, mm-hmm. it's very hard because they don't know how to turn, keep them relaxed. Mm-hmm. It, and, and it's not a conscious um, element to it. Uh, I suspect there's also some muscle adaptations too, but clearly there's a nervous system adaptation. You, they walk like they're walking with stilts, like knees don't bend and ankles don't move. They, it, it's kind of like a stiff swinging gait. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of teach them let it go, let it go, let it go to restore a, a better kind of movement pattern. Oh, exactly. And that's why a big thing that I really constantly try to preach to the people that listen and to the podcast and follow School University is that, you know, when we're about to lift a, a ton of weight, you want to create a lot of that stiffness in certain areas so that you can maintain stability and, and the integrity of your joints. But then when you're trying to move through a full range of motion, we then also need the added mobility the flexibility, the ability for certain areas to move so that you are not pushing against those restrictions. So if you know you want to squat down to pick something off the ground, you have the mobility in your hips and your ankles. So it's sort of finding that balance between stiffness where you need it, but then mobility in certain joints where you need it as well. And, and, and don't just think of it as a, as a muscular component. That's my big point to mm. you. It's, it's also sort of unconscious activation patterns. You get mm. what you train. There's, there's mm-hmm. no two ways about it and if you just trained all those to come in and then just think about if you've hypertrophied all those motor units mm-hmm. you're, you're getting a lot more response from a little bitty effort than you ever did before because you've got all that strength you need to downgrade from what your previous so-called normal or preferred pattern was to, mm-hmm. if you're following my yeah would, would you have any like practical takeaways for someone who who does do a lot of training where their their goal is to create that that intense neural drive to lift a lot of weight for a single repetition, but then they also want to make sure that they're moving well outside of the gym and, you know, able to use their body fully. Well, I I wouldn't be as worried about one single uh, 
mm-hmm. big effort. I, I'm worried more about uh, more repetitions. It's like the, the more you do, mm-hmm. the, the more it's going to be. So if, if you're doing 20, 25, 30 squats with a, with a weight, mm-hmm. you're going to have a bigger tendency to do that than one just one great big lift. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's not going to be training your nervous system in the same way. Definitely. And I, I, I think that I don't care whether you're playing a sport or whether you're playing or whether you're lifting weights, you have to undo what the activity does. Mm. Okay. Because you're building in a pattern and that pattern doesn't go for all things. Makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and you know, if, if we could really have people appreciate this whole thing about precise movement and, and knowing what to do ahead of time, you, you know, 75% of the people have a musculoskeletal problem. Hmm. I mean, it's a huge yeah, population. A high amount. It, it, it is. It's, it's a huge problem. And most of them are not like they just ran into a truck or a truck just ran into them. Yeah. It, it's what you said at the very beginning. These are progressive conditions. I mean, that pattern is being prevailed across health conditions now. I mean, everything starts early and then manifests itself later on. And that's the tough thing when trying to speak to younger athletes who maybe have little ache and pain here and there, but they attribute most of it to, I'm just training heavy. That's, you know, especially with those who sort of go by the no pain, no gain uh, mentality is that, you know, we talk about how these small aches and pains, you know, that's your body talking to you and you need to listen because if you're training that way now and you're not listening to your body and trying to fix why it's there in the first place, you know, while you may be 30 or 35, when you are 70, 80, you know, hopefully most people are still living to that age, even longer with modern medicine, the way it's going, like you're going to have to deal with the consequences of how you've trained your body and not listen to it. You know, throughout. I think, I think your you're being optimistic by putting it off <laughs> till seventy or eighty. No, <laughs> yeah, even close, yeah, you see a lot of people that they reach their fifties or even forties or fifties, and they say, "I get them into as physical therapists, and they'll say, well, I used to lift heavy, and then I yeah. hurt myself, and now I don't lift anymore.'" And I'm like, "You're fifty years old. You have so much more of your life left to live, but this is there to the consequence by by not training and listening to your body and making the correct movement changes." Of course, somebody's got to tell them how to do that. That's very true. That's where the skill (laughs) of the physical therapist is is such a need. Well, that's that's exactly what I'd like to believe, if if we can get more of them to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's very, very tough. So when you were starting to change and when you were seeing more of the orthopedic patient and coming Mm -hmm. from more of the movement perspective, what year was that? That was, I know you said you started working early. It was about uh, 1980. Okay. At that time, were you still seeing, was that a, a drastic change in the way most physical therapists were treating at that time? Like, were we still overall a very, you know, hot pack, cold pack, let me stretch this and send you on your way kind of profession? Well, uh, in, in about the 1980s, it was actually a, um, a time when manual therapy was start, starting to uh, mm. become a, a more popular thing. And, and also, so was McKenzie. Okay. So the McKenzie approach... Um, and in part of part of what I think manual therapy helped to do was to have physical therapists try to um, figure out more of what was going on, what was wrong. Mm. But but of course, as as you know about manual therapy, that the focus was on on the joint itself, and that yeah. 
that someone could could move that joint and and fix everything. I, in, of course, I grew up when muscles move joints, not therapists, and so <laughs> I I was I was more interested in that. And I think um, before that, in in sort of the seventies, the nineteen seventies, everything was about the neurological patient. Mm. Um, and the the ultimate job was to work in a rehab center where you had spinal cord injured and people were in the hospital for nine months to a year in the rehab center yeah. for nine months to a year. So by, but by 1980, and then particularly, as I mentioned with uh, Steve Rose coming to the program, his big interest was low back pain. And, um, and so I, I would see those people in, in kind of, uh, and then once you get a reputation that you can help somebody, then I started seeing a numbers of people that were in the running community. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, as I, as I mentioned before, I would just be looking at them and giving them some of the same exercises I gave the stroke patients and then teaching them how to move. And, and that, that wasn't uh, standard at the time. I mean, nobody, few people in those early days thought about, the nervous system playing a role in musculoskeletal. In fact, it's it's so funny because one of the markers of that was a um, an article published in I think it was in Physical Therapy at the time, and it was a study on people with shoulder pain. Mm. And the study was that even when the pain went away, the patient still did excessive shoulder elevation. In other words, they elevated their scapula, their the top of their shoulder when they shouldn't be doing it because the pain's gone away. Mm. And so the article was about six pages, and then there were 10 pages of discussion by other people like, well, why do they do that? Do you think the nervous system has something to do with that, uh, et cetera, et cetera? So that was how unusual it was to think about the the movement part being a problem other than the strength and range of motion. Like once that was in hand, then everybody should just move right. And, and that was, and that's what I knew was incredibly naive because of my nine years of taking care of neurological patients. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody had range of motion. Uh, for the most part, they could activate muscles. There was variance on that, but uh, it was all those muscles working at the same time. And then I was also had huge advantages by seeing the polio patient with the lower motor neuron lesion. And I knew what it was like when you just lost muscle, but you hadn't messed up how the nervous system activated it. So that's what it made it easier for me to, in fact, one of the things we used to do at that time was we called it muscle reeducation in polio because what you were worried about is that if the muscle was recovering or getting some kind of innervation that the strong synergist would over pull this muscle. So we called it muscle reeducation. Okay. And then I started seeing that, and, and this is also plays to your weight weight training things. I mean, I, I've tested people that could lift 200 pounds, but in sideline can't hold their hip in abduction. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's because, yeah, because they aren't activating all the right muscles in the right way. Mm-hmm. So, so I would have some of these people, not just necessarily weightlifters, but runners, they would have diminished gluteal muscles because of alignment changes. Um, and, and and so I was doing this sort of form of muscle re-education again. I mean, I thought you had to have polio and be missing innervation to have the problem, but it, it, it isn't. It's the same thing. You, the, the body's so clever, it uses what works best. Let me give you a very specific example. Okay. Like one of the one of the fun things is to have somebody who has 
let's say, a very well-developed right gluteus maximus, and if, and the left gluteus maximus doesn't have the same muscle definition. Okay. Okay. Now, if you test muscle test the hamstrings, mm -hmm. you'll be able to break the hamstring on the right, but you can't break it on the left. Mm. Because the body knows that on the left, that gluteus maximus is not so good. So it uses the hamstring. Makes sense. Which does, which then that gluteus maximus is not going to get better because, but the hamstring, and then one day it will be strained because it is doing the work of two muscles when it should only be doing the work of one muscle. Yeah. I mean, so, sense. so that, yeah. It, and, and that was putting together all those little pieces is what. Yeah. Makes, makes total sense. I, I know I see um, a lot of patients, especially with, with back pain or hip pain. And in talking with uh, Dr. Stuart McGill, I know that he's done some, um, some work and he would call it uh, gluteal amnesia, where, where the pain would basically neurologically change the way in which the muscle was activated. What, what are your thoughts on, on his work in that? Well, I, I have great respect for Stuart. I mean, yes, I, I know him well. And uh, he takes the the big strong approach to things and I take a little bit more specific approach. I, I don't believe for the most part, certainly not in the younger person that there's inhibition of the gluteus maximus. The reason why it's, it's this whole thing of, of how the body is so clever. It chooses what works best. Mm. I, in fact, I have a very family example because it's so funny. My, my cousin who's actually 18 years younger than I am uh, just had, when she had her first knee replaced, she wanted her right knee replaced because it was so painful. Mm -hmm. And the surgeon said, no, you mean your left knee because it's bone on bone in your left and your right one isn't that bad. Uh -huh. She said, I'm going to stay awake during this anesthesia because I want you to do the right knee and not the left knee. And, 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 and that's, that's what it was. Why did the right knee go bad? Because the body knew that the left one was no good. So it uses the right one. Mm -hmm. I've had people come in with Janu valgus so bad on one side, I don't know how they could walk at all. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, that knee doesn't hurt me. It's the other one for the same reason. It's, it's, it's that thing about the body choosing what works best, which creates a vicious cycle. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't believe that I, in the older person, when you get spinal stenosis, then they have a lot of loss of muscle innervation. Mm -hmm. Or if the joint pain itself gets severe enough, uh, I, I think many people with OA and painful hips have a hard time using the gluteal muscles because the body's kind of smart enough to say, well, don't do this to me because the more you contract, the worse the pain is. Mm -hmm. So I do believe in those situations, but I don't believe that that's what starts the cycle in most, particularly in younger people. Yeah. So we could point to uh, a large number of like hamstring strains that you see in different populations, like soccer players could be a lot of people will try to talk about how it's the problem of the hamstring. No. In reality, if we take a step back, we go, yeah. oh, it's because the glutes aren't working on that side. That's, That's why they're, the hamstrings are pulling double time. And it's only a matter of time under enough load that it's going to become injured itself. Well, there's another reason too. Okay. And the other reason is the, the hamstrings can extend the knee once the hip, once the foot is on the ground. Mm. So, and if you're doing a running thing or you're doing anything that requires sustained activity, the muscle that fatigues the first are the quadriceps. Mm. And, and so the hamstrings can not only act as the hip extensor, but they also act as the knee extensor. So they're getting double duty and then they don't know how to turn off at the right time and they never get a chance to fully recover because they're doing things at both the hip and the knee. Yeah. 
Now, is there a reason why the quadriceps fatigue so early comparatively? It's, well, it's the makeup there, the, the type of fibers that consist of the quadriceps versus the hamstrings. Makes sense. Um, I know in your book, you talk about relative stiffness. Does that come into play when we're talking about the, the glutes and the hamstrings and the difference in activation? The, the, not, not really as such. What the relative stiffness refers to, and, and the reason that that was, I, I'm trying to make a great big deal out of it is, for example, when I was growing up in the profession, if I had a patient prone and I flexed their knee, Mm-hmm. And they went into an anterior pelvic tilt. I was taught that it was because the rectus femoris was short. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it didn't take a big investigative effort to just prevent the pelvis from tilting to see that the knee didn't flex the whole way. Mm-hmm. And the majority of times it went ahead and flexed all the way. So that explanation just didn't hold water. Mm-hmm. So uh, being as swift as I am about 15 years later, I, I got the idea that it was not because the rectus femoris was short, but because the rectus femoris was stiffer Mm. than the abdominal muscles. But also what ties into that is is what we call relative flexibility. And the reason we call it relative, and and the reason why that's important is stretching the rectus femoris is a waste of time. That is not the problem. Mm. You have to stiffen the part that gives. Treat the Y, basically. Yeah, exactly. You, you, so that was part of putting the emphasis on the abdominal muscles is so that the abdominal muscles could prevent the pelvis from tilting hmm. when the knee was flexed. I'm sure we see a lot and, of that. And you, don't want, and you don't want to use the hamstrings because no. then you set up this problem between quads and hamstrings. Yeah. Makes sense. I'm sure we see a lot of that in people who have like a lot of anterior pelvic tilt just walking around, especially, you know, you see that a lot in young females and they'll say, well, it's because your hip flexors are tight. So just stretch your hip flexors. And, 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 you know, well, if you have nothing else to do, I guess that's fine. But it's not going <laughs> to yeah. get the job done. Yeah. Because you can stretch the hip flexors. And yeah. as soon as you stand up, the pelvis is going to go right back into an anterior tilt because yeah. you haven't changed the muscles that have adjusted for it. I mean, yeah. So, so that, that's why. And, and this is a passive property of muscle. It's not mm. an active one. Gotcha. Now, obviously... And what makes for the stiffness is hypertrophy, hmm. the amount of collagen in a muscle. In, when you're talking about whole muscle, there are other factors mm-hmm. if you go down at, at, at more um, basic cellular levels. But by and large, you, you, can, you can understand it by saying it's the amount of collagen, which all increases in every aspect, the musculotendinous aspects with hypertrophy. Hmm. Uh, so, so the bigger a muscle is, the chances are, the stiffer it's going to be. That, in fact, that's what studies have sort of shown. And that's, we're talking about passive stiffness here. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean it's short at all. Yeah. It just means it's stiffer. So is this the type of passive stiffness you would see in someone with back pain who complains of tight hamstrings or the sensation of tight hamstrings? Now, well, it, it, the, the, big thing, the big thing, Aaron, on this would be if, you, if this person was sitting, mm-hmm and they extended their knee. Mm-hmm. And as the hamstrings are lengthened, the back would flex. Mm. And, and it isn't because that's the length of the hamstrings. Yeah. It's because where you get to the point of the tension of the hamstrings being greater than the tension of the back extensors. Makes sense. That's what's going to make it move. 
so so it's I think of it as more dynamic and and the and, and, and it's true with everything in fact that the muscle that's really the big culprit is is the tensor fascia lata because mm. it turns out that the majority of people if they're prone and you flex their knee get lumbo pelvic rotation mm. and what that is coming from is is the tensor fascia lata because if you abduct the hip it, it doesn't happen okay. now and, and then and this is coupled with a little bit of what we were talking about before we call it, I call it relative flexibility to differentiate what's going on within the vertebral segment mm. from what's going on in the musculotendinous unit. Okay. So once your disc gets smaller than what it was, then you've got more wobble wobble in your back because the thing that gives you the most stability in these little bitty motions is, is your disc. Mm-hmm. And so once, once it's smaller, you're no longer held as perfectly still as you were before. And a lot of times it'll become a little bit smaller loss of disc height with things like a, like a past disc bulge or an end plate fracture. It's, or anything it's called like that. age. So, yeah. No, if you, I'm yeah. sure you've had many patients in which they say degenerative disc disease and they're exactly. in their twenties or, or thirties. Yeah. Oh, and, and then part of that is also the changes that go on. I mean, once, you know, one, one of the tricky things for all these people that have all this muscle is that when your back extensors get really good, mm-hmm. you're going to move where there isn't any muscle, and that's going to be at the level of the iliac crest. Mm. So your L5, S1 areas are going to move because those muscles are so stiff mm-hmm. that it's hard for you to do any side bending or rotation. And if the abdominals are stiff, you can't. Yeah. So you're going to move down there where it's not doubly protected by the passive tension mm-hmm. of muscles. Do you, would plus, that, be plus a, that a adds to the we, compression. Would that be a reason why we see so many uh, disc bulges, or especially at sure. the L5S1, we see so much like a, a spondylolysis? Of course. Uh, fracture. Yep. And, and, and then the other thing, which I was seeing more of as I was working, and then I still, when I teach courses, I, I, I always do examinations, mm-hmm. is people with too many abdominals. The mm-hmm. abdominals are so overdeveloped that they add to the compression. Makes sense. And then they'll have one iliac crest that's higher than another, so they're already in a little bit of a side bend in their lumbar spine because if one iliac crest is higher than another, your vertebrae have to be in a in a slight rotation and in a side bend. Mm-hmm. So you take that and then do squeezo. I call it squeezo smasho, <laughs> my most professional terminology. I love it. Yeah, well, old people have, I call it collapso smasho, and young <laughs> people have squeezo smasho. So it's like after you do all these abdominal kinds of things, you also need to put your arms up overhead and be able to uh, change the circumference of your rib cage about two and a half to three inches, mm. because that's an indication of whether you have enough mobility in your uh, abdominal muscles to allow your rib cage to move. And okay. then they should practice, and they should practice little passive side bends in standing, mm-hmm. and making sure they're not moving just at the level of the iliac crest, which is just increasing that relative flexibility sp- point. Mm-hmm. And so the flexibility is a term used to apply to the spine itself and the relative stiffness to the muscular tendons things. And usually they work hand in hand. If if you have a relative stiffness problem, you'll have you'll get or have a relative flexibility problem. Mm. 
I mean, it goes back to if the spine moves too much, especially under load, that's usually where we're going to find those eventual types of injuries. Now, you mentioned the TFL is often something that gets yeah. and overly tight. Um, and you mentioned testing that in prone and having the knee bend and seeing that that rotation. Um, I often use just uh, the Thomas test, modified Thomas test, and often you'll see that leg move out to the side. Um, what well, they're some- lucky if it goes out to the side. Yeah. What, what are some of the things that your uh, first steps are in treating someone who has that TFL issue? Well, you, you know, the, the main thing is, again, the most important test is not finding that the TFL is short. The most mm-hmm. important thing is, do they go into an anterior tilt? I, I say, if the people who go out in abduction are kind of lucky, because in some ways, it's not pulling them into an anterior tilt. Mm. So it's not affecting their back as much, except if that TFL on one side is stiffer than the other, then when they stand up, one iliac crest will be higher than the other, Mm. or their pelvis will be rotated. Makes sense. And one of the things that'll give people pain is the TFL on one side will pull the pelvis into an anterior tilt, while on the other side, it'll hold them in abduction. Mm. And what it also does is prevent hip lateral rotation. Yeah. And so if your hip can't laterally rotate, you're going to rotate in your back. Makes sense. And I will tell you that I, I have, I, I, I don't, uh, I'll have no sense of guilt by saying 90% of the people that have back pain have hips that don't work optimally. And I'm not talking about OA, I'm just talking about differences in the, in the muscular factors mm-hmm. affecting the hip. And, I mean, and you don't, and, 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 the, and so the big thing is, it's not a great big vigorous stretching program. Yeah. The, the, the biggest thing is getting them to contract the right muscles so the pelvis doesn't make them move the right way. Mm-hmm. And so just the prone knee flexion preventing lumbo-pelvic rotation. Mm-hmm. Prone hip lateral rotation. Now, you got to make sure the knee doesn't rotate or you'll destroy their knee at the same time mm-hmm. because the TFL will pull on the knee to rotate it. Yeah. That's where the – so they, you have to be sure that that's not happening. And then yeah. they have to learn not to use it so much. I mean, it makes total sense that you see so many back issues that are associated with hip problems. I think way too many people and a number of physical therapists as well, someone comes to them with back pain and they look at their back and they may do a little core stability work and they may do a little bit of manual work. And especially someone that, you know, is a little bit more manually based, they may try to do some adjustments or some, uh, some PA mobilizations and they never look at the hip. They never take a step back and go, Hey, let's, let's check out your hip mobility and see if you have any differences side to side? Is there an asymmetry in maybe your hip internal rotation? Or especially like you talked about, this glute isn't turning on on that side and how that can contribute to their moving, you know, differently. And then especially over time, they develop back pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, I did uh, pick up a copy of your book, which oh, is there we go. amazing. When, yeah. when did you slowly start writing, getting into writing back? <laughs> well, if, if you read the, if you read the, the, the thing in there that, um, that the, the sort of tribute thing, it says it, it first began with some carvings on stone walls <laughs> <laughs> and then moved to the pen and ink era. Um, <laughs> so, it, it, and, and, you know, it's embarrassing because that book came out in, in um, 2000, uh, 2001, 2002, actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> right at nine eleven, and um, not—I not, mean, it, right before then. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, 
but but it was it was a, a compilation of everything we had been teaching in our in our courses and we, we were teaching at washington university so i started writing it about five years uh, ahead of time now the embarrassing part is i'm in the process of doing a new edition of that book and that's mm. been embarrassingly long yeah. but um in in the the nice thing about the, the new edition is now we had, all of that was was basically theory mm. and now we have a lot of evidence for uh, the low back thing and and what and what linda's research has really shown too and this this is it, it, even in that book i had it down as such that you've got to change the way people do their everyday activities and and i always if i had a patient and they'd say you know i have two husbands three children and i'm working two jobs i don't have time for all of this do you want me to try to change my activities or do the exercises? There was no doubt in my mind. You got to change because that's an exercise. If you get up and down out of the chair, right? If if you walk, right? If you sit, right? If you go up and down stairs, right? Then you are doing an exercise. Hmm. And that, that in what in Linda's work has shown big time that with people with chronic low back pain, if you change the way they do their activities, based on identifying the movement direction. One, if you just tell them to keep everything still, mm -hmm. that's a help. But okay. if you identify the movement and help them to identify the movement that's causing their problem, the uh, effect size is really dramatic. They, it's dramatic improvement. So th that's got to be teaching people how to do things the right way. And that's can, every- Can you give an example of, of how, how understanding- how to, with, with yeah. that, with with someone in back pain, and how what some of the steps you would take to getting well, them to move, move differently. Okay, so so for example, uh, people with chronic back pain okay. are usually fall into an extension or extension rotation category. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of even if you roll, <laughs> do you roll in one piece, or do you throw your legs over first and twist in your back before mm -hmm. you get get up? Mm -hmm. Do you come to sit and stand by extending your back, or do you come to sit? By to stand by not extending your back. Mm. When when you walk, do you have a lumbo-pelvic rotation or does your pelvis stay still mm. when you do it? Do you sit in a side bend? Do you sit on the edge of your chair holding yourself forward? So all every, and, and if you play a sport, you, now I, I think you can play a sport that requires rotation and extension if you undo that after you finish the sport. And then actually one of the things that I use a lot that's not part of your daily activities, but you, you, it, it, it help, it's a big deal, is the quadruped position. Okay. And the reason for that is that if you let your back, that sometimes there's a rotation component and you're sort of stuck in rotation. And if you let your back go down and you rock back in that quadruped position, it helps to get the rotation out out of your back because the facet joints overlap more as you go towards extension. Do, do you mean like sitting your butt back on your heels like in a, a prayer stretch? Yeah, but you don't, you don't, you don't have to go back. You, you don't have to go back 30 degrees. You don't have to sit oh, on your, okay. in fact, most, most people shouldn't go back to sit on their butt because you're going to find the majority of young people, their hips don't flex 90 to 95 degrees. Sure. Their so back all they're doing, a lot. Their back, yeah, their back will flex. And then also if you look carefully, you'll see them go off to one side because their hips aren't symmetrical in their stiffness. But one thing I want to, I'm trying to tell everybody about is that you need to monitor to make sure the hip is not immediately rotating as they rock back. Mm. Because if it is, you're also 
mobilizing the knee joint. And if you want to set them up for an ACL, that's a really good way to do it. Mm -hmm. So if they're rocking back, and if you monitor the femur where the greater trochanter is, and you feel it rotate medially, they need to laterally rotate their hip mm -hmm. because that rotation is that's one solid bone so it's rotating down at the knee joint as well mm -hmm. so that's not a good plan so it's, it's there's nothing magic in just getting in the position it's making sure that the right things are happening yeah when, when they're doing that so everything from do how do they bend over to pick up their shoes what do they do when they're cooking do they lean back do they lean off to the side do they twist in the back rather than turning their body mm -hmm. and the way you start is like what what are the things you do that give you the most pain? And like, for example, even if I have somebody who has pain in standing, mm -hmm. often if one iliac crest is higher than another, if they just put their feet apart, the symptoms will go down because they're no longer in a side bend. Mm. If they have these really developed abdominals, if they take a deep breath about five or six times and I help to lift the rib cage, the pain will go away. So it's, it's all of those little things looking at what's what's contributing to excessive compression what's contributing to the rotation and teaching them how not to do it they're teaching them corrective things after they do a sport or something that furthers that in the entire idea behind a movement system diagnosis is then with our evaluation is to come up with sort of what direction what movements trigger the pain and that is therefore our label as far as whereas a doctor would come to you and say well <clears throat> you have a disc bulge at this specific level that person would then come to a physical therapist and after our evaluation we may say you have a flexion intolerance diagnosis or, or something like that and all I know you have to do is say you, you, yeah. you have a flexion syndrome a flexion when your syndrome. back flexes yeah yeah in, in fact i had i had a wonderful example i was doing exams on the students yesterday and day before yesterday. And um, one of the girls had a diagnosis of um, spondylo. She'd mm -hmm. had it for years. Yep. And of course, with spondylo, forward bending is supposed to help. Mm -hmm. And before, she, forward bending did help. But now, when she was forward bending, she got pain. Mm. Well, when I looked at her, in the way she was forward bending, she was pulling herself forward. Mm. So if I had her just standing and I just said, now, just let your head go down and just just tumbled on down she had no pain because she was only forward bending instead of using her hip muscles to pull herself forward and actively pulling herself more towards extension even though she was supposedly going into flexion do, do you want do you understand yeah. what i'm saying mm -hmm. yeah Definitely. so it's it's not just what you do it's how you do it yeah and and so you you have to pay attention you can't just assume oh well, she is forward bending, so it shouldn't hurt, or she's got a spondylo, that's what the problem. She shouldn't extend, she should only flex, but she's getting pain. Well, and of course, as soon as she tried to lift her legs, guess what she got was pain too, mm -hmm. because her iliopsoas is pulling on her back, contributing to the spondylo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes and, total and sense. She, I mean, and she's using her legs for, she's a weight trainer, and she does all this stuff with her legs. In fact, when she sat down, and, and she was only five foot, about five foot, three i think when she sat down she had pain sitting well because she sat on the edge of her chair mm -hmm. if i had her sit back and relax her back it was better but she needed a footstool because otherwise her legs were pulling down and when she first sat down she just tightened up her legs and held her knees together mm. i mean the, all of those and, and all i had to do was 
say sit back relax make sure your legs are relaxed because she didn't know that they weren't relaxed put something under your feet and she was good to go I think two things come to mind when I hear a story like that. The first is that so many times today in our society, the way the medical system is run, we so heavily rely on the pathoanatomical diagnosis. So what what the doctor has seen via MRI or x-ray, and then that people get that in their mind, well, especially with degenerative disc disease, like you said, or a bulging disc or spondy. And then from there on out, that's all they can fixate on. And they don't look at the movement impairments that go with it. Yeah, I wish it was just the public, but unfortunately, it's it's practitioners in our profession as well. And mm-hmm. that's why I'm trying to push so hard on developing diagnostic categories that name the movement direction and let people know there's a movement system and mm-hmm. there's pathokinesiologic and kinesiopathologic diagnosis. And, uh, you know, the other one of the other people that I examined that was, was such fun, too, she's got this horrible shoulder pain from doing burpees. Mm. And... Um, and it happened in October, and she was still in pain now in January. Well, it turned out that when she was laying down on her back, she was in severe pain. Now, I'm holding her arm, and then I get an idea because of where the pain is. I take the pillow away, and the pain goes away. It was in her neck. Mm. Now, she had a shoulder issue, too, but she had a neck issue. And yeah. So if somebody just looked at the shoulder because she came in complaining of her shoulder, yeah. they would have missed the most important part of this. And, and that's where... And, you know, the other thing to think about is how does the physician treat the problem of, what do you want to call it, by symptom treatment mm-hmm. or, or by surgery? True. So it's either, it's either going to be treating the symptom or treating the consequences is the way I say it. And, and, and they're not treating cause. Where we could treat cause mm-hmm. so and we could prevent a lot of a very, The physical therapist, yeah. by looking at movement and how it induces tissue damage, we could slow down the onset of osteoarthritis, just like they've slowed down the onset of stroke, except if you use drugs, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. I mean, not, not, we could slow down the onset of osteoarthritis like they've slowed down s- strokes, which mm-hmm. they have by controlling hypertension. Yeah. And in my day, the stroke patients were 50, 60 years old wow. because they didn't control hypertension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's a big deal. And, but we've got to get people to appreciate that and to get on board with, and I think we're going to need our claim to fame about what we can offer that no other profession can offer. Yeah. I think too often, and I know you've probably had the story a thousand million times is the athlete or the the person that comes to you. And by the time they've come to you, they've exhausted all other things. And they've said, well, I've, my, I went to my doctor so many times and I just kept on getting a cortisone shot in my knee Mm -hmm. and it would help for a couple months and then the pain would come back. And of course, and they're now, making their knee worse too. Exactly. And he's like, now, now it's time to, to get a knee replacement because there's literally no bone left or no, no cartilage left. Yeah, and I, I, I never liked it too when the referral said, well, we'll treat you with medication so that you don't have pain and then you can go to physical therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted them to have <laughs> yeah. the pain to come to physical therapy. I didn't want them to have masked the pain because I was the one that could show them how to move so they didn't have pain. Yeah. And I mean, and physical therapy is going to make you painful. What's wrong with that picture? Yeah. I think if there's Craziness. one thing people can take away from this podcast, it's that a physical therapist has a very unique set of skills that is different than any other medical profession out there. And the one thing that we have a skill to do that other medical professionals do not is that we can affect the cause of pain and that we can help you before 
injury has occurred or before serious injury has occurred before the arthritis has gotten so bad that you need a knee replacement one day. And it's because we can look at movement and the way that your body is interacting within itself and the knee, how it affects the hip and now the back uh, is, is changed based on the way in which you're moving. And that's a very unique skill that no other profession has. There you go. Now you joined the choir. <laughs> you said all the right words in all the right way. Wonderful, yeah. Aaron. That's, that's my goal is to help spread, spread your amazing work. So the one thing I, I would love people to do, if you're listening to this book or listening to the book, looking at, listening to this podcast, Diagnosis and Treatment of Movement Impairment Syndromes uh, by Shirley Sarman, go and pick that up. Now you said that you've got your, your second edition coming out soon. Well, it'll probably be still a couple of years. Where, and that, that's why I started to say the, the chapter on the hip, which I'm kind of proud of in there because no one knew about FAI or any of the rest of the thing. And they thought either your hip worked right or you just got a new one. And all the information we have about the hip is just, you know, medicine with the FAIs, et cetera, the CAMs, the pinchers, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, all of that. Now there's too much surgery going on. And I'm not just the one saying that. There's a lot of responsible orthopedic surgeons that they're yeah. just operating like mad even on 13 14 year olds mm -hmm. and uh, so we've got a lot of information about the hip that i didn't have but there's nothing wrong with what's in the book we just know i know a lot more now same it's, thing with it was the a lot more category. theory beforehand now we yeah. have a lot more evidence to support the movement system. well and, and there's a whole lot of information about the hips that i certainly didn't didn't know at the time and then the other thing is that we've kind of been working with Paula Ludwig as well on the shoulder. And mm -hmm. one of the motions I did not have enough appreciation for, it's not mentioned in the book, is uh, scapular internal rotation. Hmm. It turns out to be one of the, what I call the big three. Okay. The three motions of the scapula that really contribute to the glenohumeral destruction. And um, so all of that, we've redone those diagnoses. So that it'll have a lot of new content. Um, there's nothing wrong with the other book, but now we have more clarity and more evidence. And uh, can you yeah. can you speak on that the big three with the the scapula? Well, it's it's internal rotation, anterior tilt, and insufficient upward rotation. Hmm. Interesting. You find that the the internal rotation is the one area that you had not really previously talked about right. much. Right. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Yes. It's a biggie. Yeah. What, what, what are some of the things that you have learned about in the hip specific to FAI that you uh, had not known too much about when you were originally writing the book? Well, number one is I never thought that the head of the femur got too big. I kind of naively thought uh, that everybody had a, a perfectly structural hip. <laughs> well, that was really naive. Um, they, they don't come perfect like every other part of your body doesn't come perfect. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that all of that is really interesting in itself. The other thing that that I've learned uh, a lot about is uh, how the, the muscle adaptations can hold the hip in the wrong resting position. Okay. As well as making it move not right. Mm -hmm. I also didn't appreciate um, the, the, what the other thing it is in the book about the hip is what we call posterior glide. I didn't appreciate the the full-blown problems of hip medial rotation and then in people that are very flexible that can for example the person that can bend over and put their chest on their thighs mm -hmm. that they're setting them up themselves up for a posterior subluxation mm. and so because there's uh, not enough stiffness back there from the ischial femoral ligament and they've got all the deep hip lateral rotators stretched out 
So there's a lot of components of the structural variations as well as the dynamic movement characteristics that I understand much better that I didn't understand at the at the time. Gotcha. Well, I'm I'm very very excited to read the second edition whenever it does come out. Do you have Do you have an idea of when it's oh, I, when it well, should be ready? We're going to try to try to make it no more than two years. Uh, gotcha. Hopefully less than that. Gotcha. Yeah, I've, we've got the shoulder underway. I've got the low back and the introductions. It's uh, finishing up stuff on the hip and getting enough pictures gotcha. to to put in it. Well, I'm very excited to read that. Well, I want to be respectful of your time and it's been close to an hour. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know everyone that's listening will really enjoy all the in-depth knowledge that you that we talked about today. And I definitely recommend uh, to everyone listening to go out and check out the different books uh, that Shirley has written because it is, is nothing short of amazing. And again, can really just show the power of what a physical therapist can bring. Yeah, they, they might take a look to it because we there's... Um, information on the WashU website and mm -hmm. we also have courses uh my, i and my colleagues are teaching courses around so they might want some first-hand exposure yeah well i will definitely have to check out uh one of those courses now that i'm back in st louis there you go <laughs> all right well all right, uh, all right. thank you so much for coming all on right the show. nice meeting you nice meeting you as well that's it for today, class, on Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshig. For more exclusive content, log on to squatuniversity.com.